0: Welcome to You Might Hate This Book, where each episode one of us will recommend a book to the other. A
1: book that we love that we suspect our co-host might hate.
0: Well, hate is a strong word. How about, mm, falls outside of their traditional scope of interest?
1: Fine. That's fair. A book they would never have chosen to read otherwise.
0: We'll read the assigned book, then come back together to discuss. Did you love it? Or did you hate it?
1: So you agree we might hate it?
0: (sighs) Yeah. You might hate it.
1: I'm Stephanie. And I'm Hannah. And you might hate this book. Welcome back. Hi. Here we are. This will be our last regular episode for a little while. Yes. We will be coming back to you, but for the month of August, we're... Well, Hannah's leaving the country it for, is for the thing.
0: Part of the time. Yeah. yes.
1: So instead of, of stockpiling. School is
0: starting. And-
1: yeah. Instead of stockpiling episodes to release, we're going to release to you some bonus content from the vault. So you'll still get some content. It'll be shorter than normal. Some, If you're a patron, you've already heard it. Sorry. Right. Um, but yeah. We did
0: pause our Patreon for the yeah, month of August. So the patrons
1: will not get charged for the month of August because we're taking a complete hiatus. We will not be right. doing any work. We need a break.
0: Yeah. It's been a really busy summer.
1: I know. And I don't understand. <laughs> I didn't try to get busy. I don't remember saying I would like to be involved in lots of things. I don't.
0: I don't remember if we had this conversation on the podcast or off, but like, I think next summer we have to intentionally try to not be busy. Yeah. <laughs> That's I mean, why you have to be
1: intentional
0: about. It happened
1: on accident to me for sure. The thing that was taking up a lot of my time, but was really fun, was my birthday party, oh, which yes. has now transpired, and fun I think time. it was a success. Oh, it was a huge success. I had a lot of fun, um, and other people said that they did All too. All
0: involved did.
1: <laughs> maybe my youngest son, but he doesn't. Count. <laughs> uh, he doesn't count. No. Nah. Yeah, the other stuff is just uh, taking up my time, and I was not as excited about it. Right. As my party. Right. One thing happening in the month of August but we won't be talking to each other on the podcast in the month of August, (laughs) is that it's our 15-year friendiversary. Whoa. You and I met in August. Oh, my goodness. 15 years ago. That's crazy. Right? I've almost known you half my life. I know. Yikes. 15 years is, like, a long time.
0: Friendiversary.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, I have a very important question for you. Okay. What has been one of your favorite steph and hannah moments from the last 15 years what a good question (laughs) that you didn't
0: prepare for because i didn't tell you in advance Uh, i have to pick just one you can choose a smattering okay because here's the thing i think i've talked to you about this before like i didn't have that like friend growing up that i still am in contact with yeah like i i had friends during grade school and i have one friend i grew up with that I haven't spoken to for years, but if I called her today, it'd be like, sure, yeah. no problem. But nobody that I'm consistently in contact with now. So I think you're like my longest friend or it's one me. of. <laughs> yeah. So since I don't have that from my childhood, just the fact that like we've gone through a lot of milestones together.
1: All yeah, lots of big ones.
0: Like, I can, I mean, when we met, we were proto-adults, right?
1: (laughs) I don't even want to talk to her. (laughs) Like, I would not get along with 19-year-olds. Was I even 19? I was 18. Good Good, grief. That's
0: young. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yep. I would not talk to an 18-year-old.
0: Like, the things that immediately started flitting through my head, like, I have a distinct memory of our first semester in college putting weird scarves on our head and waking up one of our friends at 2 a.m. Yes. And just being silly. We were babushkas. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And, um, but then, like, we both went to each other's wedding... So I remember going to your wedding, which was beautiful. I remember you coming to mine. <laughs> late to this wedding. I have a distinct memory of sitting in the salon getting my hair done. And two of our <laughs> other friends, Emily, one of them. Hey, Emily. Uh, <laughs> comes up to me and they have this look on their face of like, we're going to try not to startle. <laughs> and they're like, Stephanie got stuck in traffic. She may not make it. <laughs> I don't know what they were expecting from me, but I was like, okay, well. If she's here, that's great. If not, I'll.
1: I'm still getting married. <laughs> yep. So. I was so annoyed with that because yeah. Kyle and I left at like five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. For. I, we should have had three and a half hmm. hours of extra time. I was like, we're going to arrive obnoxiously early. Oh, no. We're going to be the guests who are like, hey, entertain me for the next three and a half hours before the wedding starts. People are going to not know what to do with us. I ran into the building as the wedding was supposed to be starting, the music was playing, I passed Brandon in a hall, he was like, Hey it was like, hey, I'm gonna run in this way. <laughs> yeah. You like noticed me on your way down the aisle and you're like, you made it. I was like great. You're here.
0: <laughs> yeah, I distinctly remember noticing you and my elementary school art teacher as I walked down the aisle. Because
1: I was the surprise. <laughs> I made it with seconds to spare. So
0: like I remember that. And then of course I remember when we both had our first kid. Yeah. Like, I was at the hospital waiting on you to have yours. Which I still
1: feel so bad about. I
0: don't don't feel bad. I wanted to be there. We were all chilling. I know, but there was nothing to, you were just in the waiting room. Well, it I mean. was the whole process, because you started with the home birth, and we moved. Yeah. You know, yeah. Anyway. And then, like, you were in California when my child decided to make his early appearance. Yes. <laughs> so. And I was
1: supposed to be there, and I was like, um, rude, It's Rowan. okay.
0: My youngest sister was in Israel, so, like, you were closer <laughs> than she was. <laughs> Fall, he was early. <laughs> I remember bringing formula down to your house in the middle of the night. Like, yeah, so we went through early parenting together, and now here we are. Yeah, so we've gone through all these moments. It's like a fun
1: we used to be little babies, I putting know. scarves on our heads, being like, you know, it would be fun. What if we walk down to the Piggly Wiggly and get some ice cream? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, it was Big Market or whatever it's called Big Star. Big Star,
0: now it's something else, yeah.
1: But that yeah. was, like, the first thing we did together was, I like, know. walk down to Big Star. Do you
0: have a favorite? Oh, I should have... <laughs> <laughs> I always ask you the same question. I know.
1: I don't understand why I can't figure out that that's going to happen. We've grown a lot together. I know. I mean... That's a cool thing. Yeah, we've had lots and lots of serious conversations. Yeah. Like, uh, some friends that I've had for a long time, We're f- we've been friends for a long time because we talk about fluff. Sure. You know, and it doesn't actually get too serious. Right. We did not do that. It got real, real fast. (laughs) It got real, real fast. So that's impressive. We we still like each other after knowing each other's deep, dark secrets. Yeah. And went through a transitional period. Yeah. In our lives. (laughs) College is fun, guys. Yeah. And ten years from now, we'll be like, oh, my gosh, those 30 year old Stephanie and Hannah were such losers. We'll Listen
0: to this podcast and think, what? the world we did
1: this people could listen to this
0: usually it's just you know talking in your basement i know like
1: that's oh, it's a good thing the other conversations aren't you know gonna be public record.
0: i mean i don't have much social media presence and i haven't humiliated myself mostly so this has to be my thing i guess
1: yeah that's nice for you been, this, <laughs> this is the tamest i've been i get myself into lots of trouble uh I haven't been online lately because I just got sick of having <laughs> conversations yeah. with people. Yeah. Conversations with friends. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the book we both hated?
1: Boo. <laughs> what,
0: are we, what are we doing today? What are we
1: reading today? What's happening? Um,
0: so I assigned Stephanie another book by the first author we covered on the podcast, Kazuo Ishiguro. Yup. So the first one was Never Let Me Go. That was the whole reason we decided to start the podcast this novel is the buried giant which is his second most recent book that he has second most recent book shall i give you a summary
1: synopsis for
0: me okay so i am going to i did not write this one okay i am giving you the synopsis by judy berman from Time Magazine, because they put this book on their list of 100 best fantasy books of all time.
1: There's a chance I read that uh, <laughs> at some point. Yes, yeah, this was
0: in 2020. So, this is what Judy wrote Nobel laureate Kazuo Ishiguro writes philosophical novels clothed in the conventions of popular genres, from historical fiction in The Remains of the Day to dystopian sci fi in Never Let Me Go. This approach isn't a gimmick so much as a way of accessing the perfect metaphor to communicate a big, unruly idea without sacrificing emotional weight. Ishiguro's 2015 foray into fantasy, The Buried Giant, takes place in a mythical post-Arthurian England afflicted by a mysterious mist that clouds inhabitants' long-term memories. Its heroes, elderly Bretons, Axel and his beloved wife, Beatrice, suddenly recall that they once had a son and embark on a quest to find him. On a path littered with dragons, monks, a certain Sir Gawain, and an inscrutable Saxon warrior, the couple find their commitment tested. And as their journey unfolds, it becomes apparent that the Nagasaki-born Japanese-British author Ishiguro is wrestling with the imperialistic legacies of his native and adopted nations, as well as with the ambiguous ethics of preserving traumatic historical memories. All right. That was longer than I thought it would be. (laughs) It felt longer. That's all right. Anyway
1: okay so i wanted
0: to really front load the this yeah. is a good book
1: <laughs> really front it. <loaded>. okay <laughs> what do you think i thought I of it
0: i doubt you liked it <laughs> <laughs> um i don't know because you didn't love his writing style the first go round and it didn't change much i don't think
1: so do you remember what you gave never let me go i think I think based on the pancake system, I agreed to give it a three. Oh, that was. I think you
0: gave this one a two.
1: What'd you, you give <laughs> I wanted to give it zero again. <laughs> I'm really getting good you're, at this. Yeah, you're nailing it. I am <laughs> hating these books. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. Oh, man. And the thing is, I thought for so long, I finished it several days ago, and which, like. That's, like, the closest I've cut it. I, really? Oh. Yeah. I was like, you have to finish this.
0: I finished a couple of mine the night before. So. Yeah.
1: Um, maybe I finished it yesterday. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I finished it yesterday. So I had, like, 24 hours. And so I was thinking, like, what am I going to say about not liking this book? And the only thing I could think to say was, like, it's so boring. Yeah. It's so Boring. We have come full circle
0: because when we started
1: this podcast, that's what I thought you'd say to all my picks. It's so boring. I made a boring list of things that are less boring than this book. Okay. Hit me with it. Boneless, skinless chicken breast boiled and served without salt. That is disgusting. (laughs) Sitting at your desk at 545 on a Friday. Discussing the state of your 401k. Boring and painful. Watching literal paint dry. <laughs> mm. Waiting in line at the pharmacy without your phone. <sighs> An empty manila folder. <laughs> Old... <laughs> oh, that's so funny to me. <laughs> it's really specific. It's either boring or full of possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Old men talking about the stock market. Oh. Being on hold with your insurance company. Oh. A salad of only iceberg lettuce. That is... That is the epitome of boring. The Biblical Book of Numbers. A PowerPoint presentation about accounting. (laughs) Oh. That is the end of my list because I clearly got distracted. (laughs) A couple of
0: those things were more painful than boring. The old men in the stock market? Yeah. Depends on which old men, I guess.
1: Yeah. I found it very boring. Painfully boring? I mean, yeah. Okay. Okay. Whew. And I'm gonna be honest, I was in the middle of working on my notes for this podcast when I got interrupted by fair. doing my job. Yep, that's fair. <laughs> um, but because I couldn't like put into words what I didn't like, I was like, I can't just say, was so boring, what else? Yeah. So I Googled like what is the problem with mm-hmm. this book? Cause sometimes I can like help uh, give words to my own thoughts by reading someone else and going, that's what it Other is. Other reviews. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think I read that article that you just read your summary oh, from. Oh, the time. Yeah. I that think was the whole article, pretty much. I found several things that highly praised it and I was like, I obviously asked you for problems.
0: Did you find James Wood's review in the New Yorker?
1: That is the only reference I have right now. I am so glad.
0: Because <laughs> uh, I read
1: that too and was like, Okay. <laughs> um is it one of the most pretentious things you've ever heard? I mean, yeah, I get, not the most, but the thing <laughs> is it is so like scholarly and flowery and like leaning towards pretension, but I think it's really earnest in the way that it's not pretentious in the yeah, end. Yeah, it
0: was definitely scholarly, but I I have also been reading like actual Journal articles about this book lately. Okay. So it didn't, that did not scan for me, but I, yeah. that was my light reading.
1: <laughs> that was my light reading.
0: For this. Yeah. Because I, I was considering using this book for a class this semester. Okay. And comparing it with Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I'm no longer doing that uh, for other reasons, but so I had already been reading about this book and I, Recently read Sir Gawain for a class, so anyway.
1: Yeah, well, at least you're familiar with this article a little bit, so oh, yeah. You he gets think- salty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> and I was like, "Thank you, someone on my team." Yep. Um. So the article we're referring to is "The Uses of Oblivion" by mm-hmm. James Wood for the New Yorker. Yep. Um. It was
0: when the book was published yeah, in 2015. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and he teaches at Harvard and has written a book of essays called Serious Noticing. So I like to think that his opinion carries some weight. Sure. So when he was like, I also did not like this, I was like, well, you teach at Harvard. So I agree. <laughs> I get worried, like, I get worried that when I say that something is boring, that what I'm presenting to the world is that I'm actually just too lowbrow for it. Like, Oh, sure. That I'm just not, like cool enough to understand the vibe
0: right? and
1: like I don't think that's the case most of the time because no. people who know me know that I can watch a boring indie movie and be like it's about the symbolism like but boring is also subjective yeah I mean
0: art just like all art is so yeah you can find something boring and not but you know maybe don't have the language to put to it it's because of the narrative structure it's because of the dialogue or whatever. yeah
1: so I, I was just worried that it would sound Because this whole book is an allegory, and so if you don't like the book that's an allegory, especially about something important like imperialism, then you're just, (laughs) you're a troll who doesn't get it. Right. This book is boring, though. (laughs) I understand that imperialism is bad. (laughs) Good. Well, good. book is still boring. (laughs) Um, So one of the things that James Wood talks about in this article is like, is that he likes especially never let me go. Oh yes. Um and says like that the writing style serves the purpose in Never Let Me Go and yes. it like helps drive the point home and then it's like and then there's this book. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, Ishiguro's new novel, The Buried Giant, does not generate the kind of pressure that might wring shadows from the bemusing transparency of its narration. Thematically, it has obvious connections to the author's earlier analysis of historical repression, and with the blasted theology of Never Let Me Go. It also has some consonance with S greenscape of The Unconsoled. Yeah. Another one of Ishiguro's yeah. books. But yeah, he's basically just talking about How this new novel, while written in the same style, it hits different, is essentially what he's trying to say in Harvard. (laughs)
0: Because all of his other books, especially the ones that James Wood really likes, which are Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go, that very sparse style of prose is highlighting everyday people and mundane things, and so it works together. But in a fantasy world, what he's saying is, this doesn't work, essentially.
1: Which I... Agreed with. (laughs) I liked this part. Uh, Wood says, he's comparing it to other books about fantasy stuff, but says, These novels and stories are rammed with texture and telling particulars. They are dynamic, sensuous, and concrete in a way that Ishiguro's story rarely is. The buried giant has far too much dialogue like this, or Mm. more Monty Python than William Golding. Your news overwhelms us, Sir Gawain, but first tell us of this beast you speak of. What is the nature, and does it threaten us to... even as we stand here. Um, Yeah. Yeah. The dialogue was painful. I thought it was hilarious. I mean, if you think this is a satire, which one of the reviews that I'm going to make you read is like, I almost thought at one point this was supposed to be funny because it was so bad. Yeah. (laughs) Then I realized, no, it's not a joke. This is for real. Oh, I don't know if he intended it to be funny, but I found the dialogue often funny. So one of the things that he brought up in this article that I actually thought was... As a writer, I thought that was really interesting. Can you write a good novel from the perspective of people who don't have memories? Well, I think so, because I like this novel. Right. (laughs) But, like, do you understand the challenge in that? Yeah, that's a huge challenge. Yeah. One thing he points out is that Ishiguro is breaking his own rules sometimes and Mm -hmm. fudging it when it's convenient, um, because these characters have this essentially complete memory loss of their past, and then, like, fuzzy memory, of short-term memory loss. But then all of a sudden, when you needed information, they would remember this one bit of business so that they could tell you what happens.
0: So, and that's one of the things I wrote down why I think people probably would not like this book. Oh. Not even just you, people. Well, what I actually wrote down is the cross-section of people who will love this book is admittedly small. (laughs) Uh, Because... And I have three reasons, but one of them is you have to value atmospheric tone over world building. Mm-hmm. And with, along with that, you have to be down with fantasy tropes. Not necessarily... Like, I think this has the trappings of fantasy because of where he said it. hmm I don't know that I would call it a fantasy.
1: I wouldn't have, no.
0: So... You have to be down with it, feeling like a fantasy, minus all the world building, like typically when there's a magic system, you have rules to that magic system, but as you said, this memory loss doesn't really get defined.
1: Mm -hmm. I really liked, um, Wood says, well, which is it, a mist or an intermittent rain? Yes,
0: (laughs) yes, because he does not, he's not interested in the world
1: building. Yeah.
0: He picked this setting for a very specific reason, um, which I can get to later, but yeah so the 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 cross section of people who want fantasy but aren't interested in the world building and with just like an atmospheric tone, that's a narrow cross section right
1: and appreciate an entire book being an allegory and yes. being the tone of literary fiction rather like yes. so this is like literary fantasy.
0: That was my third thing on my list. yeah <laughs> you have to be you have to be in the mood for like a deeper read like a book you know you're gonna read more than once. Which, again, when people approach something thinking it's fantasy, mm-hmm. that's not usually the case.
1: Yeah. Well, his books keep getting miscast because we I talked know. about... I know. Like, people called it uh, Never Let Me Go Dystopian, and we were both like, I mean, it has dystopian elements. But, like, I would never call this a fantasy. There's a dragon in it, but that, like...
0: And there's, like, ogres and pixies and things. Yeah. But they don't
1: even... They're just part of the landscape. Yeah, you don't interact in adventurous ways with any of no. those things. No,
0: in fact, I have, um, he gave an interview in the New York Times right before it got published, and one of the quotes I pulled from that that he said is, will readers follow me into this? Will they understand what I'm trying to do, or will they be prejudiced against the surface elements? Are they going to say this is a fantasy? Mm. And it's like,
1: yep, yep apparently they, they are. They definitely will. <laughs> oh. You put a dragon and a pixie in it, it's a fantasy. Yep, there you go. And Sorry, a yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Sorry about that. So I
0: totally get it. He's playing with a lot of genre-specific elements in a way that I think is very unique and compelling, but isn't going to make it widely popular.
1: Right. And, like, I can like literary fiction. It's not that, like, because the pixies weren't pixie enough, I didn't like it. I... uh... This could have been a short story, like the allegory. Didn't Didn't
0: you say that about Never Let Me Go? Yes. Maybe (laughs)
1: he should start writing a book of essays. He has a
0: short story book.
1: That seems like it would be right up his alley. Yeah. (laughs) The Mist is essentially an allegory for historical amnesia. The, The Britons and the Saxons in this book are cohabitating right after Arthur has, you know, wrought war on the land, but they're mostly cohabitating peacefully because they don't remember that they used to have beef, essentially. Right, exactly. Um,
0: They also don't remember the mass genocide of the Saxons by the Brits.
1: Sure. Which, if one remembered, one might be upset. Right. Um, (laughs) But everyone's pretty chill if you just don't remember. Yes. Um, And then, even on a smaller scale, intrapersonally, like we we follow an old married couple the entire time. Yes. And they assume that they've had a good marriage, you know, with its ups and downs, but overall it's been good. But they don't remember that for sure. Right. They don't remember if one of them cheated on the other one or... Spoiler alert, one of them did. Yeah. Like, yeah, you can make any relationship work mm-hmm. if you can't remember that the other person's ever hurt you. Right. Um, and I I like that, you know, mm-hmm. as a as a teaching thing would talked about like to reduce or eliminate suffering free will would have to be reduced or eliminated and that's that's always the human problem is like yeah mm-hmm. we could basically solve everything as long as we didn't let anyone make any choices and we always balk against that we're like we would rather have a world with choice than a world without evil but that
0: also means a world with suffering.
1: Yep. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting thing that we're all like, I wish the world would not have suffering and that the world would not have evil. Okay, then you have to follow all these rules and you don't get to make this choice, this choice, this choice for yourselves. Never mind. I'll take the suffering. Um, Yep. That's the
0: one quote I pulled from James Wood's article. Really?
1: Is to be deprived of our past is to be
0: deprived of our future. Without memory, we are automatons, not fully human. This may be Ishiguro's greatest theme: his flatness as a writer, a way to represent our collusion with our own lack of freedom. So, yeah, yeah. The, the, we, of course, you know, we don't want to cover up things like the Holocaust. That's why we have museums to it, but it is very painful to
1: walk through it. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm going with that. <laughs> well, I mean, you're an educator in the South, and lots yes. of uh, talk has been talked about how <laughs> to teach uh, the civil rights movement. Sure. Um, I think you should be completely honest about it, which I certainly learned about the civil rights movement, but uh, there's a lot of stuff I didn't learn, but mm-hmm. I was definitely told like the truth about slavery, and now we're we're trying to maybe not do that so much because it hurts people's feelings but yeah, I so a more favorable review <laughs> that I read uh was Nathaniel
0: Rich's review in The Atlantic, and he brings up this question. Of memory, specifically of collective memory of a society. And he says, What does a society choose to remember? You know, there's the old adage those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The buried giant poses a heretical counter argument. Might human civilization, in order to prosper, have no choice but to erase the past? Like, is that how? Because that's how they have peace between the Britons and the Saxons. Uh, In both the public and the private life, like we see with Axel and Beatrice. Might forgetting past horrors be a balm? Why awaken the giant from its slumber? The answer, as most readers will intuitively conclude, lies between two extremes. Forget everything, and you lose your soul. Remember everything, and you lose the ability to forgive. Mm. And that's one of the things I... When I was reading about this novel, you keep using the word allegory, and I think it has, like fantasy, allegorical aspects, but where it falls apart as an allegory in a way I like is allegories have very, like clear one-to-one parallels, right? Pilgrim's Mm. progress is, you know, very clear. But this asks more questions, I think, than it gives answers. Yeah,
1: and that's one of the things that Wood pointed out in his Mm -hmm. article is, like, if this is an allegory, then it's a messy one. And And
0: see, I don't think it, it it definitely has aspects of the allegory, but I think, I, I don't even think I would call it that.
1: And that's the thing is, like, if it's an allegory to like teach us some better lesson, that makes me like it even more. If it's not even that, it's just the most boring story <laughs> of two old people walking in the countryside and never encountering anything useful. And then they get on a boat.
0: Oh, so sad. Like, it's Only just- Only one of them gets on a it's boat. It's just
1: 15 hours of an old couple talking to each other and the guy calling the girl princess Oh, that's
0: part of the dialogue I liked. Like, it's not stilted like the rest. It's just like, because she's always looking back at him, saying, are you still there, Axel? And he says, still here, princess.
1: Everyone referred to everyone else by their names every time in this Mm -hmm. book. I started to count. (laughs) I was like, I swear, it reads like, like we referred to like the boxcar children how it like doesn't hold up anymore i went back yeah. and read it and one of the like most immature things about the writing was anytime someone spoke to anyone else it was like well sally did you know blah blah blah. of course bobby i did like yeah there's whole book <laughs> everyone in the same conversation they will call each other by their name at every exchange and i was like this is ridiculous. But do you think
0: that's because they were trying to remember who they all were?
1: That's an interesting concept. <laughs> it was tedious.
0: <laughs> that's fine. That's fine.
1: I I think it was so boring I couldn't appreciate any, like, that might that's be fair. so. That's fair. I like that as a point. I was melting. <laughs> my brain was melting out of my ears. Do you
0: think if you had been assigned this book, like, in a college literature course... Sure. Do you think you would have, going into it with different expectations, you would have appreciated it more? or not? And I'm genuinely asking. Like, I'm, It's possible. Um, like, if you know, I'm going in this to dissect it and to... Because I think some books we teach, we kill when we dissect it. Yeah. Right? So it's always this balancing act for me, finding the books that I'm not going to kill.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think there are interesting elements to dissect here and that I would, you know, see those like... The Mm -hmm. different allegorical points and, you know, what you just said about maybe they're using the names to try and remember each other. I would have still found this book incredibly boring. It would have been one of those where I'm like, the discussion is going to be fine, but having to read pages X through X is going to be so tedious. Did you read it or listen to it? I listened to it. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah.
0: Since we've been having those conversations yeah. recently,
1: too. It was a tough listen. <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't think I'd want to listen to this book.
1: I simply did not have time to read it with my eyeballs. Well, yeah.
0: And you can speed it up. Yeah. I'm real proud. I've gotten to like 1.6
1: speed on mm-hmm. a pretty regular basis,
0: mm-hmm. unless the narrator has an accent, then I gotta slow it down.
1: <laughs> yep. I listened on 1.5, and still I was like, you're not gonna finish this. Yeah, so like, yeah. I would have thought, yeah, the class discussion about this chapter in like this symbolism and this symbolism that could be fun. Is reading the book enjoyable at all? No, unfortunately, that's like all I have. <laughs> I mean, we've already been talking for half an hour. Okay, so that's plenty. I, okay. I have
0: plenty to say. Um, I, of course, I like breaking down a book. Um, that's what I do for fun in my spare time. <laughs> So, since you were just talking about symbolism and allegory, did you figure out the title of the book, too?
1: Yeah, which actually took me a long time. Right. Um, the Buried Giant, apparently, is the memory of your past. Right, It's yes. history, because um, I kept waiting for them to encounter a, a giant, because this is a fantasy right. world. there's a dragon, there's yeah. ogres. and sure. at one point in time, she even mentions, like, where the giant is buried or something. Like, she mm-hmm. directly refers to it, and so I was like, I guess we're going to encounter a giant at some point. And then at some point I was like, I mean, maybe we don't. I have given up. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and then at the very end, you know, there's this line about like the buried giant now stirs. and I was like, oh, the giant's a metaphor. <laughs> yes, I
0: have it. I have it here. The giant, once well buried, now stirs. When soon he rises, as surely he will, the friendly bonds between us will prove as knots young girls make with the, with the stems of small flowers. Men will burn their neighbors' houses by night, hang children from trees at dawn. The rivers will stink with corpses, bloated from their days of voyaging. Whew! So, happy ending. Yeah. Happy days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, So the the whole conceit with the mist and forgetting. I feel like we probably need to explain this. The mist is coming from the dragon. Yeah. Querig, which Merlin cast a spell on at Arthur's request. And that's why sir Gawain is there to guard the dragon to make sure everybody forgets um,
1: the war so that they can all live in peace there is i'm a little confused about that though too because in the book the couple asks the question like how is it that we're able to live peacefully after we've been at war like they remember that arthur conquered certain areas they mm-hmm. remember that much and they so they just have the question, how are we all so chill? Why not make them forget the whole thing that it ever happened? Yeah, I guess
0: there are some things you can't make people forget is what I would read into that.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: but yeah, so the mist that makes everybody forget at least some things, the mist, not the intermittent rain, whatever, <laughs> um, comes from the dragon. Which Merlin had cast a spell on at the request of Arthur to make everyone forget. Because as we find out, as their memories start coming back to them, Axel had actually been a statesman with Arthur and he had helped draft this treaty or some such that, you know, kept the Britons from attacking the Saxons, but they did it anyway. Mass genocide. Cool. Great. And so I guess to make up for that, Arthur's like, we're just going to make everybody chill. Yeah. Give them all some weed. I don't know. <laughs>
1: and um, It's just a secondhand high at a concert, but for all of Britain. Right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of kind of like the, our book last week with the intermittent memories through hypnosis. Like, mm-hmm. why did they start remembering things? It, you know, yeah. also we find out Quiric the dragon, she's getting old. Yeah. And not looking too great, (laughs) much like Sir Gawain, the knight who's supposed to be protecting her to keep everybody chill. Yeah. Right. So we have these three quest narratives. Essentially, we've got Axel and Beatrice, and they kind of represent the individual memory because they don't remember their past relationship. The fact that their son, who they're searching for, has actually died. Um, And then we have these other two quest narratives. We've got Sir Gawain, who's protecting. The dragon, so he's kind of on the side of both the oppressor and peace, mm-hmm. supposedly. And then we have Wiston, which we haven't mentioned him yet. Yeah. Wiston is a guy that they that Axel and Beatrice meet on their journey. Um, he is a Saxon who somehow escaped the genocide, also remembers things, seemingly. Yeah. And so he's on his own secret quest, you don't find out till later, to slay the dragon, so that not only can we have memory return to us, but it takes a turn when he talks about we wanna slaughter the Britons just like they slaughtered us and we want no evidence of them to be left in the country. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah. that took a turn. So
1: he remembers enough to be mad.
0: <laughs> so it's like very, it's so interesting because he doesn't, again, make clear cut allegorical, like, oh, this guy is good and this guy is bad. Because Gawain is the oppressor, but also wants peace. And Wiston is the oppressed who we shouldn't take his memories but then also he wants war
1: yeah it's just messy to me that oh. Wiston can remember so much and is so mad and then right that's messy to me and
0: i love one of the things i love about this book too is how it calls or it uses other pieces of english literature Wiston and the boy who's with him edwin yeah they're they're like the beowulf character and to me, Edwin's kind of like a Grendel slash Wiglaf character um, because he's gotten bitten by a monster.
1: Yeah, what is his he's, purpose at all? It's been a long time since I read it, and he—I don't
0: remember him very well, to be honest. Yeah, he's
1: just tagging along.
0: But well, Wiston is like taking. Wiston's him. using him yeah. so that he can find the dragon. But other than that, like because he has that connection to the dragon. Yeah. Edwin's connected to the dragon. Just feels Uh,
1: like a whole entire kind of like a Grendel and Grendel's
0: mother situation in Beowulf.
1: Mm. Because
0: Edwin's connected to the dragon, and then Wiston is the one who wants to go slay the dragon. But when he does, it's. Pretty anticlimactic. Yeah. Kind of like in Beowulf.
1: Killing a dragon that is so old it can barely blink, and he's just like, Not exciting. <laughs> I kill you, dragon.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> we have that uh, narrative happening where he's obviously borrowing from that piece of, you know, English literary tradition. And then, of course, Sir Gawain himself yep. from Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which, among other things, is a poem about let's take, you know, pieces of our past but re examine it for present day, like how the chivalric code and Christianity kind of butt heads is one of the many things that that happens in that poem.
1: Yeah, see, I don't know anything about that or Beowulf. Yeah. So, I mean, I read Beowulf in 11th grade. Twas also boring. And I know that Sir Gawain is a character from Arthurian legend. That's what I know. All those interesting things you caught were just tedium.
0: (sighs) And that's And that's fair, <laughs> which is why I think this would be a really fun novel to teach in, like, a British lit class or something. I agree. Like, the discussion
1: of this book can be interesting. Anyway,
0: um, I don't even know where I was going with that. I just got real excited about the book and I'm wanted to start
1: talking about it. <laughs> so excited for you.
0: But usually when it's my turn, I tell you my experience with the book and a little yeah. bit about the author. Um, I guess I can go back and do that. I'm getting ahead of myself.
1: We can do it in whatever order we feel like.
0: Well, I will tell you, I didn't realize this until I started prepping for this episode. Just like with Never Let Me Go, which I read as a student on study abroad, I realized I also read this book.
1: When you were a chaperone? When I was
0: a chaperone for a study abroad program. So I was like...
1: Oh. I think you have Europe-tinted glasses. I probably
0: <laughs> do. Um, and
1: Everything's magical when you're doing it in Europe. He's
0: British, too, and so, I don't know. I was just in the right place, you know, to read it. I was on trains when I was reading it. So, my memories of this, before I dived back into it for the podcast, was just, first and foremost, a tragic love story. Like, that's what I thought of when I thought of this book. Yeah. Because the characters I remembered the most were Axel and Beatrice mm-hmm. and how it ends, and, like, it was... So heartbreaking, but
1: also kind of real.
0: Is the island death? Oh,
1: yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah.
0: They're going to this island, but they can't both go in the boat
1: together. Yeah. The, the concept is, like, the boatman will let you and your partner go together if you love each other enough. Yeah. So, essentially, like, if you're loved, you can't live without the other person.
0: But, of course, their memories come back, and they remember the things they did to one another. Beatrice cheated on Axel. Axel didn't let her go to her son's funeral out of spite basically right
1: i honestly do not know that's how i remember it um
0: (laughs) yeah it's it's a downer of an ending but i also found it very beautiful does he just like he walks into the water right oh i can't remember that part i just know she goes on the boat and Mm -hmm. he cannot get on with her and so he's watching her he might step into the water i don't remember that
1: yeah they end up not together
0: no and it is it is quite sad I also was just down for the fantasy elements, like and I, the boring
1: I, dragon. And I the thought boring it was pixies. fun
0: and just different from anything I had ever read. Because I I like certain fantasies, but fantasy has become such a popular genre too, and become very formulaic in some ways. That it has to be, it's like you and romance. Like it's got to be really good fantasy. Yeah, like it's got to be Brandon Sanderson level fantasy for
1: me to find it attractive. And this was just... He had a new book come out this week, by the way. Which one? Apparently it's a romance.
0: Yeah. I haven't even got to read *Tress of the Emerald Sea*. What's happening? He's
1: written three books this year. I completely interrupted you, but Kyle's been talking Does about that, that book it all day. Does that man anything but write? I guess not. Oh my goodness. Anyway, <laughs> he's amazing. Um, it's got to be really good fantasy, is what you were saying.
0: Yeah. So I was in it for just the tragic love story. The fantasy was just fun to me. I was not bored by it. And then I, I didn't pick up on a lot of the allegory the first time I read it. Mm-hmm. But I've read this book a couple times now, and like I said, I considered using it for a class. So as I was dying, deeper, I was just like, oh, oh, like, I love this and this connection. And and I love putting those pieces together. So that's my experience with the book and why I like it so much. Um, I get the critique uh, that like part of the critique that Wood has about it, like how the prose doesn't fit the narrative structure. But I I just had fun with it. I felt like it was a fable with a twist, like it wasn't a clear cut allegory. So I liked that there was some vagueness at the end.
1: Can I tell you something? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I forget exactly what this is, but on The Office, when Angela Martin says, I hate being titillated (laughs) because (laughs) she says, like, she doesn't like uh, mysteries or something like that. that. She hates being titillated. The entire time I read this book, I was like, Does Hannah hate fun? Does she (laughs) hate joy? I only kept thinking in my head, Hannah hates being titillated. Maybe I, I like, do. I was like, this is so boring. She is robbed of all joy. And the thing is, I know that's not the case. So I was just like, why are you like this? I think the thing you're so excited
0: about this boring book. I know, like I'm, I'm rifling through my notes and I'm losing my train I'm of thought. I'm so time. happy <laughs> for you, but so confused. I think I just have fun in different ways. <laughs> She hates know. being titillated. Please let that be the only similarity I have with Angela Martin. Oh, <laughs> well, I do love cats. <laughs> not as much, not as much as she does. You would never lick a cat. No, or pay that much money for one. Or have more than two. I'll say two. I've never had more <laughs> than two. I'll say two. I'll say two. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with two. Anyway, yeah. I found this book really fun, and I like a book that, like, on a first read-through, I can be like okay cool that was fun and as I get deeper there's just layers and layers and layers and a book that I can read more than once like I love that this was one of those books that when I was prepping for the podcast and made me want to read it again yeah which happened to me with Kafka on the shore like as soon as we finished that podcast I went back and reread it
1: <laughs> just anyway you're adorable your excitement is wonderful I, I am know. glad that you have this joy <laughs> we have
0: Things we share, joy in. We do.
1: This is not one, this of, is them. Not one of this. Is not one this. Book robbed me of my joy. Maybe
0: this is why we were meant to be friends in college and not high school. <laughs> because I had approximately three friends in high school, and was totally cool with
1: that. Uh, anyway, I appreciate our differences. Um, this book brought me no joy. That's uh, that's fine. If I had Marie Kondo, it, no joy.
0: I. I am an old jazz man. This is probably, <laughs> I've been listening to a podcast about America's Next Top Model, and I just went through cycle four with Naima, mm-hmm. who's a strange character, and they just said, you know what? She's an old jazz man. An old jazz man, which is
1: just a thing that you say about people every once in a while. There was some context, but anyway. I need to... I... This is completely off topic. I don't care. But I just had a highly themed birthday party, yes. and I remembered it was a Taylor Swift themed birthday party <laughs> for mm-hmm. anyone listening who was not invited. It was amazing. I remembered that one of my best friends in high school had an America's Next Top Model themed birthday party. What? Yeah. That's ridiculous. It was awesome. Wow. Like we each got to like pick a character from a cycle. We had to like create a costume and do a challenge and do a photo shoot. And we like did a slideshow of the photo shoots and she like Tyra'd us. Okay, that's and she was like, super come for It was awesome. One of like Facebook memories reminded me and like that picture came up and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm having this super themed birthday party this week. That was such a fun party. And Hannah is like obsessed with ANTM right now.
0: Uh, maybe that's what I need to do for hey, my birthday party.
1: <laughs> your next birthday? and he who do That's I good. get to play the jays <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh uh,
1: man so i thought you would really enjoy that i do
0: i do enjoy that well, well and i bring up old jazz man for a reason you're going to see in a minute so <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to tell you a little bit about this author not a lot cuz i think we talked about him on our first episode i actually don't really know i didn't go back I'll and listen remember. to it remember I, I'm afraid to go back and listen.
1: Yeah. <laughs> even, even though this episode is devolving into nonsense. We didn't know how to use the microphone. I know that much. Oh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so
0: our, our good buddy Kaz, he was born in Japan in Nagasaki on November 8th, 1954. So he is now 68. Good job. Living so long. Uh, but he his family moved to England when he was five. So he spent most of his life in England. He became a British citizen in 1983. Went to college there, all that. Literary history, he won his, his first big award, probably. He won the Man Booker Prize in 1989 for The Remains of the Day. And a lot of the articles I look at about him, The Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go are usually the most highly regarded. Yeah, those um, are the
1: ones that people talk about. Yes, Um. so that was
0: in 1989. And then in 2005, Never Let Me Go was Time's best book of the year. So there you go. And then he published this book in 2015. This was his seventh book, The Buried Giant. And in 2017, so two years later, it was when he won his Nobel Prize in literature. So, big deal. He doesn't put them out quickly. He's no Sanderson. He had had <laughs> seven books by that point. Um, and he has only written one since The Buried Giant. Okay. Which is Clara and the Sun that came out in 2021. Have I've, you read it? I have not read it yet. Brandon's read it. It's about artificial intelligence. Oh. Um, which is all I really know. Clara is artificial did Brandon like it yes he really did okay so I'm looking forward to reading it but he is so interesting in that every book he writes is a different genre but playing with that genre yeah like the remains of the day is very memoir-ish very real and grounded you've got never let me go which we've already talked about when we were orphans is like a detective story Mm. the unconsoled which you mentioned earlier is close to magical realism. Yeah. Yeah, and then we've got this one, and I don't even know about the next one. So he, like, reinvents himself with every novel, which I find applaudable. Applaudable? Is that a word? Sure. Anyway, I applaud you for that, (laughs) Sir Kaz. Uh, And I... This same New York Times interview that I referenced earlier that he gave right before The Buried Giant got published. I love this tidbit of information. This book was a long time in the making. He had started writing it and was like, I'm not sure. He had about 50 pages and he asked his wife, Lorna, to read the opening pages. Her response was brutal. She looked at it and said, this will not do. I don't mean you need to tweak it. You need to start from scratch. None of this can be seen by anybody.
1: (laughs) That is what she said to him. Oh, man. I hope he's not fragile, because so, that would ruin me. He stopped,
0: and he wrote his collection of short stories at that time, and came back to this, like, six years later.
1: I would really like to see the first draft. I, well, it's gone. Uh, it has disappeared. The way I would cry if I showed Kyle one of my books, and he goes, you cannot show this to anybody.
0: <laughs> uh, she... They're interesting, because she's part of this interview, and she's a social worker in Great Britain, and they just seem, like, <laughs> lovely and sweet, but also she's very aware of, like, him as an artist and his legacy, and just the way she talks about him is, like, cute and
1: adorable. Because
0: no. <laughs> they talk about, like, what his style will be as he gets older, and how he's worried about Boringer. it. boring <laughs> her well, He's worried about it declining and she's and getting worse, and she's like, oh, no, you're... You're too anxious about it for it to get worse. (laughs) It's going to be okay. You think about it too much, I think, is what she says to him. So, and we talked about fantasy earlier. So it's really interesting because two different fantasy writers have weighed in on this book. I mean, I'm sure multiple have. But I read a review in the New York Times by Neil Gaiman. Okay. And it wasn't as unfavorable as Wood, but he does say, I didn't love it. I think mainly he just felt real down (laughs) after he read it. Sure. It's a bummer. He he points out, though, that Isha Girl is doing something different with fantasy by combining it with literary fiction in a way that, like, might be legitimizing it a little more because it has become such a popular genre. He says in his review, um, stories drift toward us in the narrative like figures in the mist and then are gone. <sighs> the excitements that the book would deliver, were this a more formulaic or crowd-pleasing novel, are here. When they appear, not exciting, perhaps because they would be young people's adventures. And this is, at its heart, a book about two people who are now past all adventure. Axel and Beatrice, gentle and caring and kind, wished only to survive, to reach their son, to be together. They need to remember their past, but they are afraid of what those memories might bring them. Right. So that's from Neil Gaiman's review. And that that storyline of the three different quests was the one that stuck with me the most. And I was fine with it being a downer. <laughs> um, <laughs> But then David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas and The Bone Clocks, which you You should make me read both of those because I will not like them. Yeah, well, you started to read The Bone Clocks. I did, and, and I gave stopped. up. But he loved this book. He he likes Ishiguro a lot. He is quoted as saying that he were forced at knife point <gasps> to name his favorite Ishiguro novel. He would choose this book.
1: Okay. And that
0: was before Claire... I and- hope
1: you never end up in that situation, I know. sir. Who's
0: going <laughs> to... Some literary bandits like... <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious
1: about the specific author and what you have um, to say about them.
0: But the reason he likes it, he says, is the way it uses fantash- fantasy tropes to explore questions about love and mortality. He says P- fantasy plus literary fiction can achieve things that frank blank realism The buried giant, um, he hopes, will help destigmatize fantasy. Bending the laws of what we call reality in a novel doesn't necessarily lead to elves saying, make haste, these woods will be swarming with orcs by nightfall. (laughs) I I love that quote. That was funny. Sure. So the reason he set his book in this time period was not, I don't think he set out to write a fantasy
1: novel. Yeah, it was more about England.
0: Well, and he wanted to explore collective memory and how societies and cultures recover from past atrocities by forgetting. And Mm -hmm. whether or not, and just posing the question whether or not that's okay and how much of that is okay how do you move on he says in this interview I wanted to put in put it in some setting where people wouldn't get too literal about it where they wouldn't think oh he's written a book about the disintegration of Yugoslavia or the Middle East Uh, and the solution came when he read Sir Gawain and the Green Knight that was a big inspiration with him and in that in that poem it does treat the fantastic as commonplace like he does like Circle so just going through the woods, and there's some pixies, and there's some ogres, and it's not a plot point. It's yeah. just there. And so he was really interested in doing that and putting it in this, like, barren, weird England with no civilization. And then when he tried to do some historical reading and realized nobody really knows what Britain was like at this time, he's like, oh, cool, blank slate. I'm gonna go for it. (laughs) It can be
1: anything. Yeah.
0: So that was his inspiration for it. So that's why I don't think he set out to make a fantasy novel. Yeah. But he's using fantasy. I think essentially all of his novels are literary fiction. He's just using the trappings of what we more commonly associate with popular novels like dystopia and like fantasy to do something interesting and new. Yeah. I could I could say more, but maybe I shouldn't.
1: (laughs) Are you ready for several lengthy, humorous, one-star reviews. Yes, I am. Excellent. Begin with Sean.
0: Sean. This is, oh, this is interesting. It is written in the form of a dialogue. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Here it is. Don't worry, princess. Everything is going to be okay, princess. We will go soon, princess. I promise, princess. It will work, princess. There's one problem though, princess. I can't stop saying princess, princess. It's fine, princess. It won't annoy him, princess. My constant use of princess, princess. It won't annoy him, princess. I've repeated myself, princess. And again, princess, it won't annoy him, princess. To the point he throws the book at the wall, princess, and gives it one star, princess. (laughs) (laughs) I love when reviewers get creative and Mm. use the, like, tropes and style of the novel. Yep. I thought you'd appreciate that one. I really did. Also, the word princess has lost all meaning. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You know when you say a word so many times and it's like, uh, is that right? Is that a word? Susie, with a Z, Mm -hmm. like that. I <laughs> this, Okay, this is already great. I want a medal. <laughs> a big, shiny medal. I finished, though I hated it. Reading this book is similar to doing a job interview with someone you respect, but the position is for a new project called <laughs> The Dragon Flatulence Chronicles. would <laughs> be a great title. You only continue out of respect to the person and not the project. I love so many of Kazuo Ishiguro's works, therefore I'm going to pretend this never happened in a week or at least until someone asks me if I have read The Buried Giant. (laughs) The first person to declare the Lord of the Rings trilogy was a three-book chronicle about returning bad jewelry would have a field day with this one. Sure, this is about a journey, sort of, where these old forgetful people are walking around, running into things which should be fantastic adventures, but aren't. Much like many old married couples I know, everything interesting in travel can be broken down into how tired they are, how far they have come, how hungry one of them is, why their accommodations are not optimal, (laughs) and why they aren't getting along with their kids, but they can't remember why. (laughs) In this case, they don't even know where their kid is. (laughs) There was a dragon to slay in this book. Old Axel and Beatrice made that a snooze. Why was the dragon old, tired, and boring? (laughs) Axel insisted on calling his wife Princess 4,950 times throughout the book. I think he may have forgotten her name and resorted to the Hey, babe! version of addressing one's hookups. (laughs)
1: This is very possible. Hey, you. Hey,
0: hun. (laughs) I am not on any pharmaceuticals for depression, but the berry giant made me question whether that is wise. If this is symbolic of where my awesome and adventure-filled life is going, I need Xanax now. Thanks.
1: The pharmaceuticals don't help make the book better.
0: (laughs) Okay, check. I could go on and on about how much this book irritated me and how badly I wanted to give up. I know the whole thing is supposed to be one big allegory on the human condition. I should be affected. Instead, when the characters meet the boatman, I was ready to send them packing on that one-way trip so fast the river Styx would turn into a whirlpool. You know what would have been cool? Having Axel finally belt out Stix's version of lady <laughs> so he could stop calling her princess for five seconds. That would have been awesome. I need a drink. Not a drink of meat either. Just a drink. <laughs> you know, since she brought up that she really liked Ishiguro, mm-hmm. I meant to bring up earlier James Wood, the yeah. non-favorable New Yorker review that we referenced, he wrote another article two years later about Ishiguro when he wrote when he won the Nobel Prize. Okay. And that article was so funny to read right after this one. Cause it was like basically in praise of him. Like he yeah. just won the Nobel Prize. Although sure. it did start with Couldn't be like that guy's a loser. Although <laughs> I did start with I was really hoping it would be this person. Even though I know it <laughs> even though I know it never will be. I don't even remember the name. I'd never heard of him. Anyway. Poor James. But like half of the article was just devoted to how much
1: he loved Never Let Me Go. Yeah, he Half of this article was just devoted to how much he loved yeah. Never Let Me Go.
0: He mentions The Buried Giant as, like, mm, maybe a not-so-great one, but yeah, you did get a Nobel Prize two years afterwards or so whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah. and then Congratulations just, on your prize. I still do not like The Buried Giant. Yeah,
0: and then talked about how much he liked Never Let Me Go. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I thought that was funny. Because he does write such different books. Yeah. So to be an Ishiguro fan is, like, a weird thing. Jean Marcel mm-hmm. says this. Dreadful stuff. The author seems to be trying to establish a remote, dreamy atmosphere using elements of medieval English history and myth to tell some kind of obscure metaphor about aging, memory, and death. That's pretty true. The dialogue is intensely repetitive. Take a stiff drink every time the old man tells his wife, don't worry, princess.
1: <laughs> you be they're... drunk by
0: page four. <laughs> yeah. And there is a sort of anti-style that seemed to repel my attention while reading. Never before has a journey fraught with peril and fantastic creatures inspired me to have a really good long sleep. (laughs) The dialogue (laughs) is the worst, though. They just go on and on, repeating the same things incessantly. Yes, this is what old vague wandering folks tend to do, but it's no more enjoyable to read than it is to listen to. Fair enough. Oh, wow. Here we go. Yeah. Sherry. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I'm going to read them all. Sherry says, it was terrible. There is just no other word for it. I would give it zero stars if I knew how to do that. I would. I really, really would give it zero stars. (laughs) And Goodreads doesn't let you do that. Yeah. I wonder if Storygraph does, because it lets you give half stars. Really? Yeah, we should check it out. For starters, it made me feel dumb. I like Ishiguro. I do. I think that he is witty, and his characters have depth, and his plots are interesting, and his books are just charming. And so I took this thing at face value and spent the first 100 pages or so trying to figure out if I was just not geek enough to get it. (laughs) I taught 300 level stats to college seniors and first year grad students. I pride myself on being able to geek with the best of y'all, but I couldn't get it. I even pulled out some Princess Bride references, but it just wasn't strong enough to fit. (laughs) And then I decided maybe it was just that my Arthurness was not up to date. Should have gone to the Renaissance Fair this summer. I must be slipping. And then I decided it was a spoof. Some of it was so Monty Python. Gawain as an old crippled, but still willing knight reminded me of the limbless knight in black. (laughs) It's just a flesh wound, but a flesh wound. But no, because it just isn't funny. So then I spent about a hundred pages worrying that my sense of humor was gone. Do I still laugh when people fall down? Yep. Can I be relied upon to crack an inappropriate joke from time to time? Have I watched any silly videos of people and their pets lately? What's wrong with me? And so I spent the last third just trying to get through the thing. I decided I was still bright and funny and that it wasn't my fault. It was just that the book really, really sucked. And all of you, my beautiful, wonderful, charming Goodreads friends, validated this response because when I sat down this morning to write the review, I found that most of you didn't like it either. (sighs) Ah, Ishiguro just swung and missed. A sad moment, but at least it's not me. She wanted it to be her so bad. She was like, it's got to be me. And yes, the chuckle came when Axel, who is not really such a great guy, walks away in the sunset, leaving Beatrice behind. In his defense, I found Beatrice to be a simple drain on resources and rather boring anyway, even if he didn't remember something rather unflattering about her in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Woof. See, so again, likes a Shiguro, but mm-hmm. it,
1: yeah,
0: it's different. Linda. Stupefyingly banal dialogue wrapped in a plot that will make anyone who enjoys real fantasy novels long for a violent death by pixie. Okay, but what do you mean by real fantasy? Mm -hmm, Anyway, mm -hmm. the pixies were nearly the only active fantasy element in the entire book, despite the promise of ogres and dragons. Why they made such a big deal of the bravery of a warrior to kill something that literally did not move, except to (laughs) blink, I have no idea. (laughs) After taking a walk with Beatrice and Axel for more than 300 pages, I have a vague notion about what happened to them at the end. But it doesn't matter. I was just glad to see them go. (laughs) I hope Horace found his way to some peaceful meadow surrounded by apple trees. He was the only character I thought really deserved a happy ending. Is that the horse? That's Sir Gawain's horse. Okay. I did not remember.
1: (laughs) She just wants the horse to be happy.
0: That's fair. I mean, if she, like I, was traumatized by the never-ending story, then, you know. (laughs) I can't help but think the whole disaster could have been avoided if they hadn't taken Beatrice's candle. (laughs) They lived in caves for heaven's sake. It's not like she could burn the place down. I remember that stupid candle. Yeah, she was
1: Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. she just kept going on about how they took our candle, Axel. and Like every once in a while, apropos of nothing, she'd be like, Axel, do you remember why they took our candle? (laughs) Candle, candle, candle.
0: (laughs) I do remember that. Yeah. This is the Princess Candle book. <laughs> yes. Uh, last one, Kirby. This book is about 300 pages of polite throat clearing and the word princess over and over. Crimson and clover. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I don't know, but I included it. Okay. An elderly couple, a warrior, and a young man walk into a bar. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> that would be loads more interesting. This motley crew of companions wander across slightly post-authorian Britain on a not quest. The whole of their journey reads like this. The party encounter a soldier. The soldier says, Who goes there? We are but poor travelers en route to our son's village. Soldier says, I cannot let you pass. But pray thee, why, we are but poor peasants, my princess and I, says the old man. (laughs) There are foul things afoot. The old man says, But surely we are not they, not my princess and I. Perhaps you are, I beg your pardon, for now I shall kill you. The warrior says, No you shan't, dear fellow, for I shall kill you first. The soldier charges and the warrior bloodlessly chops him down. A snake slithers out from under the soldier corpse because symbolism. (laughs) Shall we carry on our journey, princess? The old man asks his wife. I think we shall, dear husband. But first, call me princess again. The young man (laughs) wonders what the heck he's doing in this boring book. Actually, he doesn't, but he should. Picked this up at a little free library. I'm getting a sense that little free libraries are where really crappy books go to die. Bailed on page 133. (laughs) Wait a minute! It says she read
1: for 300 pages earlier, didn't
0: it? Yeah, it started with, this book is about, well, it says this book is about 300 pages of Mm. polite throat clearing. Yeah. But you only got to 133, I mean,
1: I would have stopped if I could have.
0: (laughs) That's fair. But you lost a little bit of credibility there, Kirby. Fine. Yeah, it's. I mean, I don't think it would be for everyone. It's yes. definitely literary fiction. I think more than fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's literary fiction with a fantasy flavor. Yeah,
1: um, in the same way that Lacroix has a flavor of a fruit. <laughs> I love the way you once described it to me. It's as if uh, you drink television static while someone screams the name of a fruit from another room. Yes, <laughs> that is my favorite description this is that but fantasy and a book yeah so that was fun (laughs) and I have nothing to tell you to read next week because that's not what we're doing so we won't see you next week but you'll hear from us a little bit yeah
0: maybe we'll read some things we both like
1: I think that would be good for us
0: Rate, I guys. think mentally
1: we should read some stuff that we enjoy.
0: Especially Stephanie, I've gotten
1: really good at <laughs> boring her. I I need to find <laughs> my joy again.
0: <laughs> I've got some recommendations. We'll talk. Okay. Thank you for listening to You Might Hate This Book, where we discuss some of the books we love and the books we hate. You can help others find this podcast by leaving us a review and five-star rating.
1: And don't forget to hit subscribe. You can offer additional support and earn cool perks by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash hate this book pod. Special thanks to Montague Workshop. See you later. Bye. (laughs) Bye. See if we can let's just see if we can do it
0: thank you for listening to you might hate this book where we discuss the books we both love <laughs> and the books we hate you can
1: <laughs> you can do something you thank you for listening to you might hate this book join us next week for more discussion of the books we love and the books we hate you can uh, see? You, see you can hold up i got it <laughs> something about patreon probably yeah i know it is it's what the
0: you can help others find this podcast by leaving us a five
1: star re- <laughs> <laughs> we also aren't gonna be here next week <laughs> okay what? screwing this up
0: oh my gosh how many times have we done this
1: <laughs> Follow us on Patreon or don't. You know, you should have left us a review a really long time ago if you're listening to this podcast. We will see you in a month. <laughs> Wait.